Welcome back, welcome back. Yes, it's your host, Kevin Pollack. Oh, what a glorious day this is. How are you? What's going on? Yeah, write to me. Let me know uh, Let me know what you're thinking. Your thoughts, your comments, your questions for anyone who ever worked on the show. Write to me at mymrsmazelpod at gmail.com. That's mymrsmazelpod at gmail.com. I'll be reading one of your emails later, later in the program. But first, my guest. Well, this is an extraordinarily special show because we have a writer on the show, Noah, who you'll hear me struggle with the pronunciation of his last name, Gordon Schwartz. I want to do a Schwartz. Noah Garden Schwartz. Schwartz. Still can't say it. He corrects me, so listen for his pronunciation. I'm still an idiot. As I made clear in an earlier episode, this is episode 17, a much earlier episode, I recorded the first 30 while we were shooting season four. So that's a year ago now from when I'm recording this here wraparound, which is what we call the intro and outro, the wraparound in the podcast recording world. I'm going to break it open for you. And so I was listening back, of course, to the episode of me, my talking to Noah. I've been a proud member of the Writers Guild since 1990, and I've been forever saying since 1987. I went back and checked, and it's 1990. Sorry about that. At least that's when it's listed in my uh, membership uh, since 1990. Anywho, first time a writer's perspective, Noah specifically talks about his involvement in the writing. I'll let him tell you exactly what that entailed. But I promise you, you didn't know about any of this. That's the exceptional experience I'm having as host and interviewer of this here podcast, learning what my fellow cohorts and participants in the Maisel universe, what they all do, what their process is, and how they prepare and how they deliver. In this case, a writer in the writer's room with the great Amy and Dan, and what Noah's contributions are specifically to the show and season two, episode seven. And I am extraordinarily grateful. You know, he comes from the stand-up comedy world. I'll let him tell you from where and from when and from how. I also loved when he shares that he, when he was naming some of the comedians in the Catskills, he was picking from his friends from his youth, the Jews of Denver, Colorado. Yes, that's a thing. And he was taking their names and applying them directly to the characters when they were creating them for the Catskills. So he shares so much more than that. And I, I should stop and just let you enjoy. Here now, Noah Gardenswords. I just, I can't. Noah Gardenswords. Noah Gardenswords. See, there's, there's a sound missing. All right. Enjoy. And now, ladies and Jews, you know, I'm going to try to pronounce the last name. I think I've got it. But there's some letters missing in terms of my own spelling awareness and logic. So I'm going to say Noah Garden Schwartz. Now, is there not a C and an H? There's missing? not a CH. Yeah. Resist the urge to go with it's Schwartz, Garden Schwartz. But yeah, I mean, I will always respond to Garden Schwartz because I, like you, am trained to assume that it should be Schwartz. But yeah. And you would think with my own having to deal with the weird spelling of my own last name all these years, I still get called Polak and Polak. Yeah. Sorry about that. Oh, no problem. Close enough. Like I said, I'd, I'll go by Garden Schwartz or Garden Swords either way. But since you asked, yeah, the C8, not Is there. This the name that the family came over, Ellis Island, that they... Um... I mean, I'd hate to see what the original name was if this was the Ellis Island shortened version of it. I... Right. I, I I assume this is the one that made it over from Europe untouched. Yeah. Yeah. Ours was completely different. They just picked up the Pollock name at the door. They had some relative hiding out somewhere. 
my family also went all the way from Ellis Island to San Francisco. So, and you know, this is 1906 or 05. So they're on a very long trek. Sure. To get to the other coast. Yeah. The Pollocks made it out west before your Hollywood career started, huh? Yeah. My grandfather on my mother's side came from England. And he made it to San Francisco just in time for the 1906 earthquake. Ah. So timing has always been impeccable in my family. Yeah. Comedy is all about timing. Comedy and earthquakes. Well, you would know this. This is our 17th episode, maybe. And um, first writer I've had on, had several people who represent the so-called behind the camera. Cool. Along with a lot of on-camera folks. But first writer, very excited about this. We've not had the perspective of... This particular world, you know, I've had a lot of actors talk about what these words mean to them and how they want to pay, you know, the correct respect to them. And Sure. But I don't know. You've worked on so many episodes and seasons that I am curious. First of all, I love origin stories. So prior to getting this gig, what were you doing? I was a stand-up like you. Uh, this was my first official TV writing job. Like I had written for a TV show called Comedy Knockout that was just panel joke writing Mm -hmm. But this is my first like narrative actual TV show. And I mean, I really lucked out with this being the first job. But yeah, I was a stand up for a little more than a decade before I got the interview to meet with Amy and Dan. And was it explained to you that as a stand up with no TV writing experience, we're really looking for you to punch up the stand up material? Yeah, I mean, yeah, the interview was under the auspice that like I was meeting very much so to be a person in the room, not so much even helping with punch up so much as like advising how it feels to do stand-up or like making sure that the scenario of Midge and others doing stand-up was set up correctly. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. Amy and Dan are great joke writers on their own. So I was certainly there for Punch-Up, but was also there just to kind of represent the world of stand-up comedy at large. And did you did they give you a sense of why you? I mean, every talent wonders that, but rarely asks. No, I mean, so I had just recorded my Comedy Central half hour a few months before the interview. Uh -huh. And I think my agent sent over my half hour just to like showcase my stand up chops. And I think they liked my material enough to be interested to meet with me. But what actually I think won me the job was in the interview, I was explaining how I came from such a diverse background of stand up in, time, in terms of the rooms I played. Because I started in Atlanta and really came up a lot of time in the black rooms of Atlanta, but then was also doing some of the wider, more mainstream rooms, the alt scene, I was doing colleges, I was doing Jewish corporate shows. Sure. And so by playing to so many different audiences, I think that they could draw from me, like with the plan of Midge kind of going all over the map with the kind of gig that she does. So really what set me apart from, I'm guessing, other standups that they met with was the diversity of the standup I was doing at the time. Nice. And so you entered this world having seen what? How much of the show? Just the pilot. I've been yeah. writing since episode two of season one. Yeah. We started the same time as I remember. Yeah. And I hadn't even seen the pilot. I just read the script for it. Oh, you didn't bother watching? It wasn't out yet. Oh, wow. It wasn't out for like the general public to consume. So I'm I'm sure it had been shot, but like I I had not seen it. Now, <laughs> believe me, I wasn't so lazy that I didn't even bother watching well, the pilot before going in for the interview. Yeah, I mean, this is odd because, you know, Amazon put, like our show, all their pilots up on their streaming portal to gauge audiences' involvement before making a decision on the series. Yeah, I mean, from what I understand, so when I went in for the interview, it was with the understanding that it has not been picked up yet, but they felt really good about it. As they should have. Yeah, so I think they were just trying to have their ducks in a row for like, if we get picked up, we want to have our room ready to go day one. Which is pretty standard. Yeah. Yeah. When you're getting an indication. 
because I'm sure there was already feedback. Oh my God, this is amazing. Because we were all told that Amazon's original marching orders were just make it look like a movie and do whatever you want. Sure. Well, they did. They succeeded in that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And also all your table reads should look like weddings. Unbelievable. (laughs) Well, again, having not written on a TV show, I mean, let's just take a moment and absorb that for other stand-ups or comedy writers or TV writers. This is the Mega Million in a sense, because I think, yeah, they did win the Emmy the first year. Yeah, I mean, I, I've said several times over, it's all downhill from here. Like after yeah. this season, whatever my next job is, I'm sure I will not be uh, treated to table reads and set pieces like what I've grown accustomed to. Right. Yes. I mean, one of the all-time great calling cards moving forward, and I'm sure your agents haven't wasted any time passing that around looking for the next gig. Sure. So the meeting goes well. You get notice shortly thereafter that they'd like you on board or? Yeah, I think, yeah, not too much time. I think a few weeks after. Still, the show hadn't been picked up to series. Uh, I can't speak to when they officially knew versus when I did. Again, this was close to six or seven years ago. So my timeline might be fuzzy enough where I don't know. But I mean, certainly before it became like public knowledge that it got picked up to series. But yeah, I mean, if the pilot hasn't aired yet, in the chronological order of the conversation, it was up and airing for many, many weeks before it picked up to two seasons. So, yeah, I mean, maybe I'm wrong that it was a few, maybe a month or two after, not a few weeks, but it wasn't long. I wasn't like in limbo for half a year or a year yeah. waiting if I was going to have a job. Right. Yeah. Well, this transcript will be shared with a arbitrating judge, usually a retired judge, so I wouldn't worry too much. Okay, honestly, I wouldn't doubt it. (laughs) Yeah, so so many questions. First of all, we're so far off from you getting the job to people even seeing the series. Maybe a lot saw the pilot, but the series is going to be quite a a length of time because I do want to get to the point in our conversation where I'm wondering what are other stand-up comedians coming and saying to you within your own peer group after seeing the show and how many of them want to get on the show so I was pleasantly surprised by the show's broad success not because I didn't think it was as good as it is I was just not expecting it to be as well received across cultural lines. I thought it was going to have a cult following within like the elderly Jewish community. And then On maybe the Upper a West Sides. Right. And the, yeah, I thought it was going to be like a beloved show amongst older Jews. And then like a few artsy people, maybe stand up comics would check it out. But because it took place in the late 50s, early 60s, I didn't even think it was going to yeah. really translate to like my generation of comics being excited about it. But um, I mean, it just hit like gangbusters for so many reasons. Also, I think having a really strong feminist protagonist at the time that it came out right in the era of the Me Too movement was like a strong support of groundswell within it. So there were a lot of reasons why Mm -hmm. it took off. And then fellow comedians, I was was very pleasantly surprised by how warm they were about the way we represented stand-up comedy. Right. Yeah, that was a big surprise to me. Because comedians love to hate shows about right. comedians that they're not involved in. Sure. They, <laughs> well, that, well, that's where the fact that it was in the late 50s actually right. helped us because it wasn't a world where they felt like they were currently living. So they couldn't poke holes at like all the things that were different than their experience because it was 50 years, 60 years before they were doing stand up. Yeah. What was interesting, though, 
to me because obviously I was very sensitive to my stand-up comedian friends judging the show as would be their want. You know the comedian my age, Bobby Slayton. You ever come? Yeah, across the, Bobby the, the pit bull, the pit bull of comedy. I know Bobby. Sid Yiddish, yeah. Uh, he said, Pollock, I love that uh, marvelous Mrs. Matza. It's a great show. <laughs> yeah. I mean, listen, my no one is more proud of the show than my father, and he still can't pronounce the name correctly. Yeah. He still says Mizell. So. Yeah, sure, sure. No, I think Bobby said, amazing Mrs. Matza. I, I think he fucked up everything, except Mrs. But I think I also know he did it on purpose, because he's always busting balls. Sure. All right, so you get in the room once the assignment becomes real. And the show is picked up to two seasons and they begin the process. And how early are you and any other writers brought in in terms of breaking stories and or the first season? So I don't know how far like I don't know when Dan and Amy started breaking stories independently, because when we came in day one, there certainly was already a lot of meat on the bone for like season one. It wasn't like, all right, guys, we got the pilot picked up. Now what do we do? Amy and Dan had a very clear vision for the arc of the season and to a lesser extent, the show. Sure. From the very beginning. So episode outlines of any kind? Yeah. So so basically what it was, was a very loose episodic outline for the whole season of like, here's a whole bunch of ideas that we have for every episode. Let's kind of narrow down what works, what doesn't. And then there were a lot of things that were left blank. Like we know Midge is going to do stand up in this episode here. And we know she's going to do stand up in this episode here. But mm -hmm. we still had to settle in on what the storylines were going to be because Midge's stand up usually correlates with what had happened to her that episode. You know, like there were a lot of blank spots to fill in of like mid, like I said, mid stand up episode three, mid stand up episode five. But in the meantime, let's figure out what the through line of all the other characters is to inform what that stand up becomes. Right. But right. but Dan and Amy had done a lot of heavy lifting before any writers even got in the room in terms of like what the story was going to be, for sure. No surprise there. And those yeah. first batch of writers, along with yourself, were yeah. who else? It Jen was Kirkman. It was Jen Kirkman, Sheila Lawrence and Kate Fodor. If I remember right. correctly, it was the four of us. Right. Because it's right. changed little by little. The room has changed every single year in terms of it, it hasn't been the exact same group of writers any of the five seasons. Right. Yeah, which is also fairly common in television. Yeah. What's nice in that room, I think, is having read the script and eventually seeing the pilot, as soon as you were legally allowed, you have a sense of almost all the actors yeah. who have breathed life into these. Our wonderful cast. Yeah, I mean, obviously. so much is on that page. Every actor will tell you it all starts on the page. Every writer will tell you, as a proud member of the WGA since 1987, every writer will tell you, I just hope the actors don't fuck this up. Sure. In this case, it seemed to be a bit of a lightning in the bottle situation. Part of the brilliance of Amy and Dan, not just these great words, these great stories, these great characters, but also casting. You know, it is such the make or break in every scenario and certainly a big part of every lightning in the bottle overview. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I had nothing to do with casting, nor do I know who was of up course, for. Of course, I have no idea who was up for the parts that ultimately all of you got. But like, having worked on the show, I now can't even envision another actor playing any of the roles. Like, I can't imagine anyone besides you being Moish, anyone besides Tony being Abe, certainly anyone besides Rachel being Mid. So it's you know, yeah. we, we have a great group, and everyone has kind of nailed the character they were hired to play. Yeah, yeah. I meant more in terms of moving forward, you had some faces you sure. had, right, to put to these 
characters. And even though the world hadn't unfolded of the first season and somewhere early in the process, I'm assuming you were able to watch the pilot. Yes. <laughs> you, then you see all of the production and department heads coming together as individual geniuses way beyond the written word and yes. just the casting to elevate this thing into, oh, Jesus. Because everyone who sees the pilots has a very similar experience, most everyone anyways. And so I imagine then going to work on the show is ultimately a little more exciting. But let me ask you in particular, in terms of the chronological order of this podcast, I've been doing a bit of an episode breakdown, and I sure. think I requested you watch season two, episode seven, which we'll get to a little bit. Yeah, which truly is one of my favorite episodes. Oh, wow. Amazing. Great. So I just came out of episode four, five, and six, which were the Catskills. And one of the things, having just had Connor Ratliff on, Chester, uh, yeah, I, we talked, I talked to him about, you know, if you want, from a writer's standpoint, if you want more insight into just how crazy brilliant these writers are, here's a great example. When you have Susie show up at the Catskills with that plumber's helper, yeah. you've already been diabolical in your creating such a great introduction to how the hell do we get Susie into this world? You've already thought outside the box. You've made Susie a stronger character for her. This is her thinking outside the box, not you, the writers. This is her, all her idea to show up as a plumber, but also the plumber being the least desirable job at the camp. Yeah, which was kind of the idea, just this innocuous part of an ecosystem that kind of goes unnoticed by all the yeah. people paying big money to spend the summer up there. Yeah. Nobody wants the job. So everyone's happy to see her when she shows up. Yeah. To the point where they send out a search party when she goes missing, which was just yeah. so fun. So great. But then in their ability to think beyond and not only beat the joke, but top themselves, there's no reason to create justice. There's no reason to give Susie a nemesis once she's there. Other than we want to flesh out her involvement while she's there. But the creative sense of how do we flesh out her life at camp? Let's give her another person who is faking their existence and reason to be there. But for no other reason than A, they might be a sociopath. Yeah. B, they're just a crafty Jew looking to go to camp for free. Right. I mean, that that's all Dan and Amy. You know, it's yeah. like the 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 character... Chester yep. was 100% their brainchild. But then, of course, again, being in a room with people who are that creative and that genius at what they're doing makes it a lot easier to then be able to write jokes or funny scenarios in a world that has yep. that few rules, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was some of the fun for you all in the room was to, okay, when you hear we've created this character, Chester, who's just going to show up and be a nemesis to Susie. And here's some of the ideas and now let's have the audience play the guessing game. What is this guy's motive? You know? Yeah. Super fun. So then since episode seven, since you've claimed, let's start with what is, because again, we've just come out of the Catskills, which was just a magical departure. Sure. And I think first of its kind for the show. With No, no. They started season two, the first two episodes in Paris. In Paris, right. Yeah, so that that would be not only <laughs> a little a, bit more of a uh, of a yeah, trick. Yeah, a brilliant departure. This was a way to broaden the Jewish experience in New York of the day 
everyone's heard of the Catskills, myself being a California Jew. I think even the California Raisins had heard about the Catskills at some point because it had such legend and lore. So coming out of that world and we go back into really following the Midge and Benjamin. Right. This is, you know, she met the guy up in the Catskills and now this is Midge for the first time actually having a real suitor outside of her relationship with Joel, like someone who is a real potential threat to breaking up whatever relationship Midge and Joel may or may not have had going forward. And is that one of the reasons this is one of your favorite episodes? No, no, it actually had nothing. I mean, Zach Levy, who played Benjamin, was great. And I love that whole storyline. But this is one of my favorite episodes specifically because of the Yom Kippur scene in Shul and the breakfast after. Sure. Because one of the things that I always tell people, I was brought in originally to help out with the stand-up. But even to this day, more of my contribution to the show has been the Jewish scenes and getting the Judaism right and the Jewish culture and the jokes around that. Ah. And so anytime there's a scene like Yom Kippur where we get to actually write the specificity of what it's like to be towards the end of services when you've been fasting all day or like what the hell of break fast with a bunch of hungry people all trying to eat while someone has big news is afterwards. Like that's where I feel like as a writer, I got to kind of shine and Amy and Dan were really open to a lot of my ideas as one of the I think season one, I was the only Jew in the room besides Amy, who's half Jewish. And then season two, Daniel Goldfarb was in the room. But it's a surprisingly not a lot of Jewish writers on the show for such a Jewish show. So with the Jewish scenes, I kind of got to step up and share a lot of my ideas. And the Yom Kippur scene was so fun. Yeah. For the record, Zach Levi, if we're going to mispronounce okay. well, each, other, yeah. so, each other's yeah, names. As, as Garden Schwartz and Pollock, uh, <laughs> Levi should be the easy one. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. No, no. We talked, he was on uh, recently on the podcast and we talked about our name mishaps. And also the storyline that involved Benjamin going and kind of finding the art. I think the the Declan Howell character who yeah. kind of had his monologue about what you have to sacrifice to have great art and kind of like you have to pick or choose. It's either going to be the family or you can devote everything into making the greatest piece possible. I thought that was a really moving kind of speech. And as an artist, something that resonated with me. I had nothing sure. to do with writing those lines, but Again, it still sat with me. The inception. We want someone to help Midge on this journey. We want a, a new character to come into her life who can demonstrate from personal experience what it means to truly sacrifice everything to be great at this, which yeah. is one of the few things I've ever told any young actor or before that comedian who wanted advice or in a school setting on the few rare occasions when they allow me to talk to impressionable youth. How much of your life and everything are you willing to give up? Yeah. You know, in addition to if there's anything else you can do well, you should try that first. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's the best advice you give. Yeah. But the creation of this character that's going to come into the story, who is going to give this important lesson to Midge, the idea that that person would not only not come from stand-up. They don't come from show business. They come yeah. from one of the deepest, darkest, most soulful art forms, which is of the underappreciated or self-sabotaged painter. Yeah. Another form of tortured artist. Historically. Oh, man. Yes. Historically, I think as a people, we know more of that legend and lore than of the self-sabotaging, tortured stand-up comedian. So, yeah. So I thought that was kind of uh, beyond the pale and wholly unnecessary in the genius level of creative writing that 
he come from a different art form, yeah. let alone outside of show business completely, because it would have been so much, not just easier, but more embraceable if it were a singer, if it were a dancer, if it were, you know. Right, because he's not a performer. He's just someone giving himself to the art. Yeah. And also, because it's that deep, dark world of a painter, it almost gives an exit, an easy out, an easy excuse. Well, I don't need to be that crazy. I'm just a stand-up right. comedian, right? Yeah. So the episode does begin in the art gallery where Midge buys the painting in the back room for $25. Yes. It came with a knitted hat. Came with a hat. That was that that's what did it for Midge. That was as we all know, she's a sucker for a good hat. Yeah. And after rewatching, Jamie, my better half and I, we were watching we, and she suggested, wait a second, as we're leaving the art gallery, there was an Asian woman dressed in black, eating a green apple, looking at a painting. Yeah, you know who that's supposed to be. And so Jamie suggested, and I reached out to Amy in text, who instantly confirmed, yes, a tip of the hat to Yoko Ono. Again, just a little tiny, unnecessary nuance of the show's creativity. And hey, why not? Yep. And so in the writer's room, is there even ever um, that sort of penchant of the show come up in the room hey I, we're looking for something from the art world to have a little poke at yeah i mean y usually when you have something as specific like as much of an easter egg or a wink wink that comes directly from dan and amy and it's not even a mm -hmm. discussion of like do you guys think this would be funny it's like oh here's what we're gonna do and it's just like yeah great it's your show it's your genius idea of course it's gonna happen when they have those ideas they just run with it sure but there are times where they'll literally have a like we're just looking for a button here or something fun. And then they'll literally have every writer just pitch, give us 10 to 20 ideas randomly of who could this person be. And then they collect from the five writers, a hundred ideas and choose the winning one, you know, little things like even the name of the comedy club that Midge ultimately performs in, or the name of the nightclub that Joel opens. That's more of a like, Hey, we're looking for a name, give us 20 ideas. And then they end up picking the best one and we all compete over who got the winning name. Sure. And I would be remiss and probably yelled at by the entire internet if I don't ask you to maybe share one small victory of your own in this runoff competition. So I I did not win the button club. I did win most of the Jewish names I won. Like sure. I heavily populated the last names of characters at the Catskills from like kids I went to grade school with. <laughs> so, so so a lot of a lot of Denver's Jewish community got their own tip of the hat in the Catskills based on the names of the characters. Yeah, and I also love that Catskills characters got names from Colorado Jews. Yeah, of course. Well, I mean, all the Colorado Jews were still at some point by way of New York if uh -huh. you, you know, if you go deep enough in the history, so. Right. Right, right, right. All right, cool. Thank you. Again, one name. Let's go specific. Let's dial into one name. Polly Auerbach. There we go. Polly, yeah. who uh, yeah. we've already had on the show as well. And so, yeah, nice. yeah, yeah, good, good, good. So then we go to the Maisel and Roth. The next scene is Joel and Mrs. Moskowitz, Ar Archie and, and some employees. And Joel is just yep. buzzing. He's buzzing around and then he gathers everyone before he goes off to Yom Kippur and he's celebrating. Yeah, he's celebrating that they had just bought the building. Right. While also like just absolutely running through different models and speed dating every night of the week, you know, yeah. just drunkenly distracting himself with different partners. And so it's kind of a mix of like on the outside, Joel is doing great business wise. Things have never been better, but personally, he's kind of running into a tailspin. 
Yeah. Yeah. I remember my own myopic experience was, wait a minute, Joel's announcing to all the employees that, quote unquote, we own the shop. Yeah. Where's Moise? As, as opposed to, yeah, you're always wondering, where's Moise? As Joel's, well, because we had, we had to start giving yeah. Joel a little bit more ownership of the business as he's going to be more responsible for finances down the road. And I'm all for that. But let's sure. have a cutaway of Moise even standing in the corner with his arms crossed with a look of quelling. Sure. Look at my boy. Look at my boy taking over. He's made such a nice thing. You know, then I have the inner struggle of the lazy old Jew actor in me is so glad I wasn't needed for that scene. Yeah. 14 hours in a honey wagon just to stand there with crossed arms in the corner of the room for 30 minutes. <laughs> oh, the assumption I'm in a honey wagon. Um <laughs> No, I got the fuck off back to L.A. is what it usually means when I'm not working okay. in a scene. But then, you know, the other side of me is, as I was saying, Moy should have been in the corner at very least. To finish up that previous scene, I do like what you said about let's show Joel Maisel in his element, but also running through the various women as he attempts this dating experience. Because this is also the episode of Benjamin and Midge. So we're right. we're starting to build the debate. What camp are you in? The Benjamin or Joel camp, which right. the internet has an awful lot of fun with. Sure. Once all these episodes are out. Well, yeah. And I mean, it seems like you're going chronologically through the episode. So I don't want to jump to like Joel's final thoughts in the episode. But but again, he kind of answers it towards his very last lines of the episode in terms of whereas it looks like he's having a lot of fun at the very beginning. You yep. kind of realize by the end, subconsciously or psychologically, what he's actually doing. Yeah. When his pal Archie's putting him to bed. Yeah. And he's saying, will I ever be forgiven? I just want to be forgiven. He's, you know, yeah. he's kind of ultimately punishing himself by dating For all sure. these women he has no feelings about. Yeah. yeah. The truth serum of alcohol is allowing him to uh, have his own little confession yeah. with his Goyam friend. Okay. So then we, then we go to the artist bar where we meet. Rufus Sewell's character, Declan Howell, the aforementioned yes. Declan Howell. Yes. Such a wildly difficult actor's thing, playing that drunk, playing that intensely drunk. Yeah, he did it. I, I mean, I can't imagine having to do it, but he did it wonderfully. Yeah. I've heard, and I'm sure you can speak to this, I've heard that like one of the hardest things to do is successfully play drunk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but he he did it. Super happy, super sad, and drunk. Those are the three most <laughs> difficult. And normally, if you're drunk, you're one of those two emotions. So yeah, the greatest advice I ever got was someone who's drunk, especially that drunk, is just making an effort to not appear drunk. So uh, rather than play someone who's drunk, you have to play someone who's trying desperately trying not. To, yeah, that's good. Drunk. Yeah, because I feel like the natural inclination would be to slur your words or trip right. over your feet, but then yeah not believable right yeah it's a very difficult thing so let's bring in this wonderful i want to say british actor rufus sewell but i know yeah he did a great job playing the role yeah and clearly with a name like declan we're really zeroing in on a stereotype of a drunk irishman <laughs> the drunk irish artists in particular i think um yeah that's a bit on the nose meanwhile the character benjamin is completely losing his mind because he's pointing out all the different artists that are in this bar i do love yeah. that too the idea that this is the place where they all hang the same way in a comedy club this is the club yeah we were we were trying to kind of juxtapose like how people would nerd out in a comedy club over lenny bruce or you know someone else that they saw this is benjamin's version of he is in the arts world so it's not like He's completely foreign to Midge's lifestyle in that 
even though he's a doctor, he is passionate about the arts. It's just a completely different art that he's passionate about. Of course. Now, in New York, do you have a room you hang in? Is it the cellar? Is it somewhere else? Yeah. Yeah. I was a cellar. I was a cellar comic before I moved out here. Yeah. So there's a place where fans are going to geek out just a little bit. The one good thing about the cellar is that they have the notorious back table where fans, by and large, know like you can't really approach. It's kind of like a VIP room without the velvet rope in front of it. People, if you're sitting at the comics table, typically you don't get bothered. Sure. Which is one of the reasons they gather there. Yes. Quote, New York City's greatest unknown artist is how Benjamin shares with Midge. Oh, there, there's Declan Howe. But you get the sense unknown here just simply means not successful enough to be famous. And as we drill down, I do love that we find the self-sabotaging is behind a lot of why he's not better known. Yeah. And then my favorite is when he meets Midge after the bartender cuts him off and he climbs atop the bar to recite a poem. Midge decides this is the time we're going to go over and meet him. Come on, Benjamin. And he's instantly taken by her. (laughs) As is everyone who meets Midge Maisel. Yeah. Specifically the color of her skin. Like yeah. some magical dairy product, yeah. which was from a writer's descriptive. That's tough to beat. I think that was an Amy line because I know Amy is big on skincare and I know that she's big on a luminescence of Rachel's complexion. Yes. And then Midge, of course, is successful in schmoozing Declan to allow Benjamin to come by to buy one of his paintings, go to his studio. But he only yep. agrees as long as she comes along. And then the next walk and talk of Benjamin and Midge is really about Benjamin trying to say and protect, no, no, you're not going. And her explaining a little exposition, which I hate unless it's creatively dished out, which this is beautifully. What is Midge's experience with the handsy men of her occupation? And what a great little way of letting the audience into her experience and her life. Yeah, it was just a way of her basically letting him know she's not naive to the situation or what men are capable of, but she's also more than prepared to protect herself and is fine in that environment. Right. But I do love the design of when to share that information about Mid. Yeah. And here's a perfect scenario where, in fact, she's not just hipping Benjamin into, I can handle myself. It's always more detail with Mid. She always gives, yeah, she's an oversharer. With things like this, which is <laughs> to kind put of... It, to put it lightly, yeah. Yeah, which is kind of great. Yes, of course. It's just so great. And that's... We get to Benjamin's apartment. Midge is hesitant to go in and explains why. And I do like... I love the little dance that happens there between these characters. We see chivalry and intent without any desire unless consent. Right. I thought that was played beautifully through the dialogue and the actors. And then ultimately she goes in. Yeah, well, sure. I mean, Zachary Levi is fun to look at as well, from what I've heard. Yeah. Who's not going in with Shazam? Come on. Sure. <laughs> and then the next scene we talked about, which is Archie, basically the scene, him putting Joel to bed and right. Joel. Uh, That's when you kind of learn the subtle pain that Joel is in under all the like boisterous over the top outward mm-hmm. behavior. Which is really great. Really human. And again, lines up perfectly with the holiday being depicted in Yom Kippur, like this kind of self-flagellation and atonement through self-awareness. Right. Well put. And then on to B. Altman, where, oh, I do love when Midge is showing off her skills at the makeup counter again. And she's interrupted by Ginger from the switchboard, informing her that a very angry man is demanding. Yeah, it's just the running joke of Susie being confused as a man, whether 
her voice or her appearance either way. Just a long line of people who think Susie's a man. I mean, it just never ends, really. That sure. runner. And so that every now and then when someone, I think it was Rose, well, clearly she's a woman at some yeah. point in one of the episodes. Yeah. Like, what's the matter with you people? I think you're right. I think it was Rose. Yeah. There's an East Coast booker who wants to see Midge on Yom Kippur night. Yes. So we have some stakes to add to the Yom Kippur beyond, well, I mean, when we get there, it's just when it's decided by Abe, you're going to tell everyone tonight at Yom Kippur. But let's first stop at the butcher shop, which I do love. As Rose informs Midge, the rabbi has agreed to come. Yeah, just adding more stakes to the night of why the dinner has to go well and why it's setting up it's this important. Yeah. British yeah. slamming door comedy scenario. Yeah. Which is much better and intense and or just more Jewish. Yeah, just adding another layer on a cake that we had many layers. Yeah, and allowing the iconic line we got the rabbi. Right. A shout out to the pilot. Sure. Beautifully. And then another world opening up Susie's world. When she goes to the family waterfront home. The Rockaways, yep. Yeah. Are you there for any of that or are you just... What do you mean by am I there? Physically. No, I wasn't on set at the Rockaways. We, the writers for the most part, were, were only physically there for the stuff filmed at Steiner. Yeah. Except we were we were up there at the Catskills, but... Right. At the Steiner Family Resort in Binghamton? Yeah, yeah or Fortune. I forget what it was called. Yeah, Binghamton, Fortune, and Prospect. These were all right. these neighboring towns. Yes. We just know that Rod Serling was from Binghamton. Ah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, no, we weren't at the Rockaways physically, but we were physically present in the room when the idea was conceived. Mm-hmm. Do you have any memories of the sussing out of Susie's family? Because, you know, the ilk that she has come from. Yeah, I mean, it was it was really just figuring out how disgusting we wanted to make how unlikable we wanted all the men in her family because we knew that she was going to have a close relationship with Tess. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't that everyone in her family was an absolute nightmare, but it was, yeah, the the men in the family, specifically her brother and brother-in-law, we had to make really deplorable characters, Yeah, but also in a comedic sense. Like we had to make them hateable in a way that you could still laugh. Yes. Oh, sure. Yeah. We don't go dark till season four. Right. <laughs> and then we double down. Weirdly becomes my favorite season. Arguably, because it is so dark and dramatic. Yeah. Well, coming out of the pandemic, you know, Oof. we were all locked in a room when we wrote that season. So, yeah. And the rest of us were like, how are they going to do this at a time when so many were, yeah, I'm not feeling it. I'm just not feeling it. I think I'll just sit on the couch and catch up on Below Deck. Yeah, we did it just like you and I are talking now. This <laughs> is how season four was written. Over Zoom. Over Zoom. Yeah, but yeah, so season two. So that was the situation with the brothers in the Rockaway. Yeah, cool. All right. And so great. Those scenes are so great. And also, again, just that sense rewatching it of Susie back in that world and her comfort level of, you know, put out and disturbed by the two idiot fellas. But when she's sitting there having a smoke and a beer with her sister you do get a sense of comfort that we, we've not seen yeah and it also just sort of informs or justifies the prickliness that comes with Susie's character you know because exactly. you only see her at the gaslight or in midge's world on the upper west side and you wonder why she's so rough around the edges and then when you see this is the how she grew up and you understand exactly why she's the way she is yeah almost we, we were left thinking so just this her version of show business has beaten her down and made her so jaded no no it no, it's actually her. her whole life. Yeah. Yeah. As as with everything, it starts with childhood trauma. Yeah. 
Yes. Nature and nurture. Yeah. So at Declan Howell Studio, we go for what we were discussing earlier about finding the right character to bestow the insight and the care for what you wish of being an artist and how much are you willing to sacrifice Yeah. when he takes her to the back room to see the ultimate painting, which geniusly we never show the audience. And Benjamin has found a reason to leave and come back. It's just so great. It's so great between the two of them. Yeah, and it's also it's also nice that this guy who clearly was attracted to Midge when he invites her into a back room, it's not to try to make a move and try to... I mean, he does lightly try to sleep with her, but nothing physically imposing or, or disturbing. It's just, first mm-hmm. and foremost, he wants to show her this art that clearly means the world to him. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in fact, when he starts to show her this magical mystery painting, there is a sense of, oh, is this his move? Right. I mean, the classic line from somewhere was come back to my apartment and see my etchings, I think, is somewhere in literature. So you're right. It does evolve nicely, rather organically, but also quickly, that he's not interested in making a move at all. He really did want to share this with her. And now we know, now we've justified why it's important to him to share with her, care for what you wish, and this is what you got to do. That's the reason I brought you back here. And yeah. Well said. It is, again, it's just beautifully articulated as a story and as a scene in the writing. And Rachel's performance, looking at that painting, that's why we don't need to see the painting. Yeah. It's all in her face. Right. She did a wonderful job reacting to something we'll never know what it looks like. But also, it would have been impossible to show the painting and have it accurately represent what it was supposed to be, which is the greatest painting anyone's ever seen that no one will ever see. It's like, how do you go about depicting that? And you can also because of the golden rule of any art, which is it's subjective. Right. So no matter what they show, X percentage is going to go, meh. But you're right. Rachel's reaction to this, whatever this painting was, certainly sold the emotion of it. Yeah. And then again, the extra little bonus of the writing to the topper button of the scene and really their relationship and the payoff for Benjamin. Tell him he can have whatever painting he wants. Just leave a check. Yeah. Oh, man. Beautiful. And then we're back to Susie's family in the waterfront home. And that's when we have that sit with the... Yeah, it's just really showing that Tess and Susie are on the same page in terms of just... Yeah. She does have one person in her family who's on her side. Right. And then we're off to the temple for, oh my, the services and the family dynamic and where you, as a writer and a contributor to the show, you were saying, are dependent upon. Yeah, I just got to have a lot of fun with a lot of the jokes. You know, I think I think by and large, the non-Jewish audience catches a lot of the Jewish humor of the show. Mm-hmm. But then there, there are little things that really have to be a lived Jewish experience to truly appreciate, like... Things like Moish and Shirley sitting down because old people are allowed to sit, even though Abe is his agent standing. Those are little things from my years in synagogue and at that situation that I knew would be funny for people who knew exactly what I was talking about, even if it flew over some people's heads. And by flying over their heads, they still got to see such specifics of writing and performance and scene. Yeah, and we we always have fun with Astrid being the most overtly pious and and devout. Obviously, it's the one who converted who cares the most about Yom Kippur. It's yeah, it's just a lot of fun in that scene. Yeah. I had Justine on the podcast to talk about the. She's great. Yeah, oh, she's so great. Yeah. What about the uh, giving the four year old little bits of candy bar? 
Yes. Did that come from? Yeah. I mean, so I, I have a joke in my, like in the hour that I do for Jewish audiences, I have a whole joke about how, like, I don't think little kids should be allowed in synagogue on Yom Kippur in general. Cause it's, I was saying, I think my joke, it's an old one, but it was like, it's the one day that I'm supposed to atone for all my sins. And all I can do is think about stealing a three-year-old's apple juice where <laughs> it's just basically like, yeah, it, anyone who can actually eat during Yom Kippur shouldn't be within a hundred yards of all the adults who can't eat. Yeah. And so I always remember little kids being able to eat candy bars and apple juice in the middle of services while we're starving. And I loved, I, on the day, loved, and in rewatching, thoroughly enjoyed that Moish seems the most pissed off about. Yeah, of course. Well, I mean, Moish is like a crotchety old Jew. <laughs> yeah. It's, but specifically about the experience of Yom Kippur in the temple, we see the, why is the kid eating? Yeah. 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 It's so good. And I think after it was right to break us. Yeah. So, well, that's that moment I was saying where at the end of the services, I love the overhead shot looking down as everyone yeah. scrams from their seats. Yep. And that that's another thing that Daniel Goldfarb and I made sure to impart is like the minute that shofar is blown and services are over, people are booking it out the door to grab food. Like, yeah, no it's intermission. Chat. It's yes. intermission at every Broadway play. Yes. It's like someone scream fire in the theater. Yeah. Get out. Yeah. Yeah. And in that hurried hubbub out in the area just outside the doors of the hallowed temple, but still within the building, is where Mid stops Abe and tries to involve him in a plan where she has to leave early to do this set, the Yom Kippur dinner, and him finally saying, you're going to tell everyone tonight, and thereby adding that to the soup, the bouillabaisse of just how horrible is this dinner going to go? Yeah. And as much anticipation has been installed in you, the viewer, you still don't know what derailment is until this scene unfolds. The orchestrated chaos. I remember on the day, us the actors being surprised is a mild way of putting it. Annoyed would be the medium tone, and we don't need to get into any of the darker tone of the necessity of the coverage, the camera coverage, which... sure has been kind of removed from our acting experience in the Maisel show, which we've talked a lot about on this podcast, the A-page winners and the so on. What it all boils down to is a lot less coverage and a lot less having to do the scene from 16 different angles right, 375 times and what that can do to the easily annoyed actors. And the pace of everyone needing to land the joke specifically when they do, how they do, you know, yeah. when you have eight or 10 different speaking parts where every single line matters to build the tension and the humor, you guys all nailed it. But I can only imagine how many takes it took to get everyone and their coverage getting it correctly. Well, that's the weird part is it, it becomes apparent to the actors, little inside baseball, as they call it, it becomes fairly apparent to the actors very early in that day's work. Oh, this scene is going to come to real life and real brilliance and real pace and real comedic payoff in post. We're not actually going to be able to perform it to its highest level. We'll do some masters and then it's two days of coverage. Well, cheers to the editors because it came out great. Yeah. Jamie Babbitt, the director of this particular episode. Yeah. If I'm saying her name correctly. <laughs> I believe so. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, Amy and Dan, of course, doing the final cut and Man, Oh Man. De- rewatching all of those pieces, all the nuances, you, you're right, they do come together, thankfully, 
from the page through that final post edit, where the timing of all those bits so necessary, usually in performance of a oneer that takes three hours to rehearse. Yeah, and twenty takes to get correct. We've lost sense of it as actors doing all the individual shots and, and the coverage. Everyone was, you know, remarkably professional. No surprises on that end. There haven't, throughout all the years, been any、um, divas or even you need to shoot me out first because I'm number whatever on the call sheet. Yeah, the giving really comes through on that sort of day's work. But I imagine from the writers' room and punching up and working all throughout that. Yom Kippur dinner and contributing as much and the necessity of everything landing. So were you on a set by Video Village when we were shooting? I believe, yeah, yeah.、It、makes sense that you guys would be there. Yeah, so it was.、Um, I mean, again, speaking to what you were talking about at the very beginning, where once you finally have a face to the actors playing these roles and you know、mm. a little bit more about the tendencies of how everyone's going to play off of each other, it's. The chaos of a scene. First of all, just anytime you have a Jewish family dinner with that many people, regardless of whether or not there are stakes, it's just constantly people talking over each other and trying to eat while someone else is trying to talk. So that、mm-hmm. dynamic is at play in general. But then, you know, knowing how well Tony does the fake surprise, <laughs> how funny he can be, and how funny you can be when you're being moish as a dick, not trying to be a dick, when you're just like tell a joke. You know,、yeah. you're a comedian. I think you should be able to tell a joke. It's like that in itself isn't a funny line unless it's you delivering it the way you do. And so, kind of knowing how all the pieces of the cast fit together, while it's going to be this rapid fire Amy and Dan style dialogue over a multi layered conflict, is just a really fun scene to get to write and bring to life. Yeah, are we really going to be able to sell pickles in a purse? Sure. Yeah. I mean, because Shirley has been ridiculous enough of a character that you can、yeah. believe that she has a jar of pickles in her purse. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. Well, kudos. That scene, as painful as it was to do, ends up being one of the all-time greats to watch. Yeah,、like、it was. In rewatching、series. it, I forgot how fun it was. Yeah. And the But, pace,、um, and the tempo, and you're right. Everyone doing their piece from Rose repeatedly. But I understand if she's your manager, why is she also a plumber? Yeah.、Uh, how good of a manager could she be? I mean, the, the questions are not just naive; they're logical. Right. It's just beautiful, and also Matilda, the level of anger and frustration, and the yeah, coming that, in and out of the meal. Not now. Not now. That was something I remember Amy and Dan being really excited about seeing Zelda, who's typically so sweet and subservient to the family she works for, kind of getting to be the boss in the kitchen now that she has people working for her. And showing、yes. a more aggressive, angrily Polish side to Zelda was a lot of. They were excited about that specifically. And then also ultimately losing it in front of everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was great. So good. And then you add the rabbi, and then you add Susie at the table. <laughs> I understood there'd be food. She said. Yeah, yeah. Or I was under the impression there would be food at some point.、Uh, and Moish with the cereal box just it won't.、Uh, all、yeah. of it. Yeah. I'm just yeah. The rabbi eventually leaves, and that's when Moise says, "All right, tell a joke." Yeah, and the way that Rachel handles all of that is pretty remarkable. Everyone, everyone in the scene, yeah, yeah, everyone did their job. Everyone nailed it. All the writers did their work. All the actors did their work. Amy and Dan and Post, so on and so forth. It really did represent just how Jewy and how magical the show can be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and how many moving parts it takes to get a scene like that to work? Oh my! 
And then we finish in the Gaslight Cafe with Jackie sort of letting us know how good Midge set was that night. Midge letting us know she just basically reenacted Yom Kippur dinner on stage. Right. And it's fun. Yeah. And it's it's good that we didn't try to reenact the yeah. funny. Like we weren't going to beat the hilarity of the dinner scene. So you didn't have to see Midge do it on stage as a less funny version. You just had to trust that she did well. And I'm glad yeah. that we didn't have to try to write the stand up for that. Or even the last few lines of it. Let's just cut to them yeah. at the bar afterwards. Yeah. Right. Right. They toast to Midget's future career success by saying tits up. What continues that runner? Was that born in the Catskills? I know it came up in the Catskills. I think it was born in season no, one. No, it was, yeah, it was season one. I think she says tits up at the uh, beginning of Midge going on stage after Lenny yep. in the season, yep. in the finale. Standing in the wings that aren't wings yeah. at the gaslight. Right. And then continued all the way through at every opportunity, be it um, the USO show or performing in the Catskills. Or, yeah. Yeah. It just became their break a leg. Yep. Well, damn. So thank you for your time. If there's anything at all that comes to mind you want to add at this point, but otherwise, just know I'm so grateful for your time. Yeah. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure joining you today. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for the work that you do on the show, bringing the words to life so well. Oh, well. What a pleasure. What an absolute honor and pleasure. I'll probably press you to come back in the future as I'm doing season by season. No problem. I do love the writer's perspective. Yeah, happy to do it again. Just let me know. Oh, Noah, thank you so much. Noah, he knows. Noah knows. Yes, he does. So did you get the whole name thing out of the way? <laughs> How about that? Right? Right? Write to me at mymrsmazelpot at gmail.com and let me know what you thought of it. To hear from a writer from in the room with them and how. Thank you, Noah. Thank you for all those insights. Extraordinary. And I look forward to having him back on the show as threatened. Extraordinarily grateful for his time. And I want to hear from you about it. What did you think of all this? Are you rating and reviewing and subscribing and telling everyone you've ever met? I know you're writing to us at mymrsmazelpod at gmail.com because I have another one of your email questions that I'm going to get to right now. Let's open up the mailbag. Today's mail comes from Bob, who worked on the show. He was the head tailor at Maisel and Roth. And would see him all the time whenever we were shooting in there. And also when they built part of the set on the soundstage, I would see him. And uh, he was written in a few times. And I want to say thank you, Bob, here on the podcast. We're going to have Bob on the show because he brings another wonderful perspective. And so I'll save all the Bob stuff till then. But now let's get to Bob's email, please. Okay, here it is. Enjoyed the podcast with Saul Rubinek discussing the cat skills. I got to perform there in the 1980s when I toured slash sang with the Duprees of You Belong to Me fame. We worked there with the late Joey Bishop and had a wonderful time at Grossinger's. Watching the cat skills episodes brought back that wonderful time. Did you? Do any stand-up in the Catskills? If so, 
Whom did you get to meet and work with? I love the stories about the comics of that bygone era. So I wanted to include this question. Thank you, Bob. I want to include Bob's question in this episode with Noah because we discussed the stand-up comedy so much. I am, uh, I know it's hard to believe, California born and raised. Everyone thinks I'm from New York. Doing Mush Maisel certainly uh, did not help me with a, uh, no, 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 I'm from California. And so I did not perform in the Catskills. I came up through the ranks of the stand up comedy clubs in uh, San Francisco. And listen, it's all my book, How I Slept My Way to the Middle, technically not just a funny title, but and available on Amazon. Uh, I read the book, Audible. Yeah. On theaudible.com, you can listen to the book. So yeah, I did not do any, have any uh, great stories to share about my time in the Catskills, other than being an actor who was insanely fortunate to be uh, on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and shooting at the Scott Family Resort, not actually in the Catskills, in Binghamton, I want to say was the name of New York, Binghamton, near Prescott. We talked about it in a previous episode. I'm not sure I've come clean on. I do know that it's where Rod Serling is from, and I've mentioned that as well. Sorry. So thank you, Bob, for your question. I wish I had more to contribute, but I did want to initiate involving you, Bob, in the podcast. So the next step, of course, would be to have you on. But thank you for today's mail. And those of you listening who have a follow-up question or your own question separately, comment, anything, write to us. I'm Mrs. Maisel at gmail.com so that I, too, might read your email. Thank you for that, Bob. Closing up the mailbag now. All right, that concludes today's episode 17 of my Mrs. Maisel pod. Thank you for your ears and your time. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, write reviews, rate, tell everyone you've ever met. It so depends on you and your word of mouth. Uh But yes, thank you from my heart. This is your host, Kevin Pollack. And until next time, I'll see you in my dreams and please be kind to each other. Okay, closing credits time. My Mrs. Maisel pod was created by me, your host, Kevin Pollack, research writer, producer, Jamie Fox, and our engineer, recording, post-production producer genius is Ken Plume. My Mrs. Maisel pod is brought to you by the fine folks at Q-Code. Q-Code. Sounds like something, doesn't it? Oh, lastly, you should know... I'm told by legal to make this crystal clear that my Mrs. Maisel pod was not sanctioned in any way, shape, or form by Amazon Prime, nor the show's creators, Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino, although I feel the need to mention I did get their blessing. Okay, good. That should save me some legal. Everyone needs a break from the real world. That's why we played games as kids, and that's why we should play games as adults. I'm Troy Lavalley. And I'm Joe O'Brien. And back in 2015, we started a podcast called The Glass Cannon Podcast, a show made up of comedians and actors playing a fantasy role-playing game. And now is the perfect time to start listening because we just started a brand new story. It's basically Lord of the Rings meets Game of Thrones meets X-Files. Search for The Glass Cannon Podcast on your podcast app of choice. Hey, life is hard, so come play pretend with us.